Test one, two. Test one, two. Oh, wicka, wicka, wicka. oh is this it? This is it. <laughs> oh, we're starting. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Okay, friends, what a special treat we have for you. It's February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. To those of you who like Valentine's Day, to those of you who don't, happy February 14th. I am here in the recording studio, which is the garage, with the editor of the Lucky Few podcast, Josh Avis. Say what up. What's up, friends? So we are here together recording a very extra special February 14th episode with, we're calling it Couples. I don't know. What's the name? Couples episode. The episode with the couples. So today on this episode, um, we know that not that Valentine's Day, again, is not everyone's favorite day, but we know that this is your favorite podcast. So maybe we'll have a great time together anyway. We know that not everybody is in a relationship and has a partner and that that is not the thing that gives you value and worth in this world, dear listener. And we know that some people are. And so while we can't touch on every, while we can't hit every single person's specific life's circumstances on February 14th of 2023, we are going to dive into some questions that our listeners sent in about couples. Relationships. Relationships in regards to raising children with Down syndrome. So you're going to hear from me. And me. That's Josh. They were the Avises. You're going to hear from Micah and her husband, Chris. And you're going to hear from Mercedes and her husband, Andy. And that's what we're going to do. So here, here we go, Josh. Here we go. It's time to shout some worth and shift some narratives for people with Down syndrome. And again, we've got some fantastic co-hosts. Our husbands are with us today. We're going to talk relationships, friends, and I hope that you'll stick around. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. Friends, do you love a good story? A good story changes you, right? I think we all know this is true. And if you've been listening over here for a minute, we also know that stories shift narratives. Well, I've got exciting news. We here at The Lucky Few have teamed up with Katie Casada once again. So she is basically a story expert. And Katie launched something really rad called Story School Live. And this February, in just a few weeks, we are having our second ever Story School Live event, and it's going to be in Southern California. We're so exciting. Story School Live is a moth-style storytelling event. This event will feature eight people telling true stories live on stage, five minutes each. And every storyteller will share a story around the theme of belonging. Hello, does this not completely resonate? Tickets are on sale right now. They're only $35, which is really affordable. And every single cent goes to the narrative shifting storytelling work happening at the Lucky Few Foundation. I hope that you're going to be able to join us. Again, the event is February 16th. It starts at 630 and it's at the Whimsy in Pasadena, California. And if you can't make it, if coming to Pasadena, California on February 16th at 630 is not something that you're able to do, then you can grab a ticket for $20 for a virtual recording of the event. So you don't have to miss out on any word in any of these amazing stories. We're going to be told live on February 16th at 6.30 at the Whimsy in Pasadena, California. 
Look at this, the editor trying to be the podcaster. Oh, here I am. <laughs> I get to read a review. You guys, I love listening to these. I love editing these. And it just means a lot. The feedback really means a lot. This is not in the script, but we just really appreciate it. These these reviews help others find us. They are um, just really good for someone who's just diving into the podcast. And this one is from Julia. Julia writes, I'm writing to express my gratitude for the podcast. I imagine that I am not your typical listener. I don't have a child or a family member with Down syndrome, but I have learned an incredible amount of information since I discovered your podcast a few months ago. I don't even normally listen to podcasts. This is the only one I have ever stuck to. Yes, Julia. Thanks, Julia. Hello, friends. (laughs) (laughs) Julia, thank you so much for that review. That's lovely. We're glad that you're listening. We're glad that you found us and that you're sticking around and we hope you love this episode. And friends, if you are a listener and you have not left a review, you can head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review and maybe we'll read it next week. You'll hear it here. Okay, ready? Let's go. Okay, it's Micah and her dear, handsome, beautiful husband, Christopher, wishing you a happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Or Galentine's Day, which is the one that I prefer. What does that mean? I don't think I've ever heard that. You don't know Galentine's Day? No. Is that... Like something you celebrate with somebody else? You celebrate it with your gals. Because guys are the worst. Sometimes. Got it. Okay. I like that. It's from Parks and Rec, but you didn't watch Parks and Rec with me. That's true. So we're here to talk all about very important things, which is relationships. I don't have anything to add to that. (laughs) Okay. So this is a very special episode of Valentine. Well, no, this is a very special Valentine's episode of the Lucky Few podcast. And Chris and I have been on before. Chris, do you remember the times that you've been on the Lucky Few? I do. Tell us about it. Um, I remember not having to put my mouth this close to the microphone. Which we're basically making out while we do this podcast. (laughs) It's very romantic. It's very romantic, except neither of us have brushed our teeth yet this morning. We're on our second coffees together. (laughs) And that's it. That's all we have to say. We did do it. We did an episode about marriage, didn't we? A couple of years ago. Do you remember? Yes. It was a great episode. (laughs) I'll make sure it's in the show notes, just in case everyone can't wait to jump over and listen to that one after this. Um, okay, so everybody is jumping on, Heather and Josh, Mercedes and Andy, everybody's jumping on to answer a few questions um, that some of our listeners have sent us about relationships and partnership and what it is like to prioritize your relationship 
when you're raising a child with a disability? And that's a major question because it really is, you know, marriage and partnership is hard no matter what. Um, but I think when you add in a child with extra needs, it can get really complicated. And, um, and not everybody understands who's not in the same situation. So that's what we want to talk about. Yeah, I think um, it's already can be a lonely thing. And um, if you're not, if you're not able to handle process, navigate that with a partner, it can be extra difficult. So I'm looking forward to chatting about it. All right. So one of the first questions that um, we got from listeners was, how do you make time for each other? And, um, you know, I think this is a question that it wasn't something we just answered in the first year of Ace's life. I think it's a question that we um, are constantly working through because uh, as your kids grow, I mean, whether it's Ace or our older boys, what our family life looks like, what our time looks like, what the needs around us look like changes. And we've sort of had to navigate how to make time for each other in all different stages of life. Now we have a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old, and Ace is seven, almost eight. And um, I think we're figuring out figuring it out for a new season. But um, I would love to know from you, Chris, what, what it has meant to you or how you've thought about how to make time for me and how to prioritize our relationship when, especially in the seasons when it's been really hard. Well, I'll just comment. I think one thing you might be getting at is that we used to have evenings. And now that we have a teenager and an almost teenager, we don't really have evenings uh, because they're staying up as late as we are later in some cases. And so, you know, we're trying to get to bed in our 14-year-old is coming in. That's when he wants to connect with us, which is wonderful, but also means that we don't really have that time anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have really prioritized mornings. That's not normal for me or not easy. I should say it doesn't come naturally. Um, but um, really over the years, the before kids get up and get crazy has been the, the real prime special time for us. And I think it started out with just us wanting to maybe read a book, drink some coffee, have a nice chill time. And um, it's become a real foundation, a real rock for our marriage, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's there's a lot of things you'll hear, or at least we did in our early years of marriage. We've been married now uh, oh 18, 18 years, 18 Almost and a 19. half. Yeah. And um, early on, there was a lot of like, make time to have a date every week. And I think there's kind of this pressure of if we really prioritize each other, then we're like going out to dinner once a week. And then you have kids and you're like, babysitters are really expensive. And this is tricky because life is tricky. There's a lot going on. Um, And I think one of the, like figuring out our mornings together, that probably happened around year eight I think when when Brooks our 11 year old was a baby and it really transformed our life because it was free it was like free and cheap and we could we could get up and even though we were tired we had this coffee time and it was like 
the time that we could actually connect with each other. And that started to be a major priority because that was the only time we really had. I think what happens in that time is that, you know, every 24 hours, you get a little bit of a reset and you get to say out loud, you know, what happened in the last day? How did it make you feel? Um, what are we doing going into this day? And it just, I think it just grounded us in a sense of we're on the same team. We're doing this together. Um, it can be really lonely um, when not not everybody can connect with your experience. And so to have that every day has been huge. I think it's also been a way to like connect emotionally, especially in the harder seasons of parenting um, where we've been able to to hear from each other and listen to each other and support each other. And, but that, that has required a level of vulnerability that I think is a muscle we had to build. Yeah. And we're kind of going to get into the next question here, but I did want to say, um, I think another way that we, uh, make time for each other, it's very different, which is that we encourage each other to get time away. Um, and maybe that's something that if you don't have kids with a ton of extra needs comes a little bit more naturally especially as they get older but you know if you think to when you have toddlers it's like i could never get away right no one neither it would feel like a huge burden but um as they get older hopefully that changes but when you have a kid like ace um it does feel like you're burdening your partner to get time away but i think encouraging them to do that has been huge because as much as it is hard of course to care for them on your own the benefit to your partner is so big. And even if that's like a day, you know, to like a night away with friends or Micah, you've, you've gotten to go on some writing retreats or I have a work trip here and there. Um, I think that's been a huge way to get some of that personal um, recharge time, right? Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a level of that that has to be self-sacrificial. Like it is definitely hard when the other one is away, but um, recognizing that we're both giving that to each other is major. And uh, that's one of those things where you're like, I'm just grateful that you are up for that, Chris, that you're like brave enough to take it on and self-sacrificing enough to give me that, knowing that I'm going to give that to you too. Yeah, I'm, I'm really self-sacrificing. <laughs> just just want the listeners to know um, it has not at all about, you know, building up for myself for next time. But um, uh, yeah. Okay, great. Okay. Next question. Well, well, well. All right, friends. It's Mercedes and Andy. Hello. Here we go with this question we got from a listener. Do you and your partner respond similarly to ableist comments? Do you feel the burden of advocating if your partner does not? What to do if they're silent on important issues? I was um, not sure about this question because I feel like, and I explained this to Andy, that I feel like in our own journey... Even though we're both people of color, we're still 
which I feel like can give us some similar experiences, not the same, but similar experiences to what our daughter, Sunflower, who has Down syndrome might go through in her life. But I think for the both of us being her parent and she's our oldest, we still are very much um, working through our own ableism. So I don't know. I feel like we're still new to this topic and we haven't had any um, too many experiences of responding to ableist comments. We haven't besides like maybe the whole like when it comes to sunflower being dropped off at certain things, you know, that isn't special needs focused. We very much align on our approach to it. But um, I think for the both of us, we recently it came to our attention that um, our daughter Sunflower is very sports and physical driven. And we got to see that a lot this past two semesters. So spring of 2022 and fall of 2022, having her on sports teams that are special um, needs or disabilities focused and just seeing how she was actually super capable um, of being on a typical, quote unquote, typical team, how we probably approached that very cautiously and very inviting and cushiony, I would say, from the start. Wouldn't you say, honey? Yeah, I think we were I think we were quick to to look for those programs as a place for her because I think we really cared about her confidence. We really cared about her ability to feel like that she's probably more competing with herself than others. And um, it was, it was exciting though to see her thrive, you know, in those spaces and kind of realize that her, you know, kind of more equal athletic capability was pretty similar to her peer ages. Yeah. I think like we grew up, with just a nurtured perspective of just seeing people differently, much like many of us do, right? Like I, it's taken me years to even see my own brown skin, you know, and to like realize like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean for me? Like, how do I, how have I even looked at myself and, and not known how to place myself in society? And so I think it's felt like it has been a really nice, like educational learning experience to figure out like, oh, how, how have I embodied ableism in some ways, you know, and not even realized that I could be more active in, in changing that, right? Even though, like, we've adopted a person with Down syndrome, there's still, like, like what you're pointing out is that we kind of just immediately went first to signing her up for programs that she would, um, you know, find likeness in because of her disability. Whereas we, we, what we found now with this next season is then we decided, okay, well, let's put her into you know, city sports and just that kind of thing. And she has been doing wonderful and fantastic. And it's like, this is a, it's beneficial for the community around us to see her out there. And then, you know, B she's doing great. She doesn't even, you know, she's not phased by any of it. She's finding confidence. Like she's finding like energy output and you know, she loves it. She does. And that was exciting to kind of, watch her do this without skipping a beat and exciting to see wonderful coaches um not bad an eye at it really you know they we just like signed her up and everybody was fine I think I, I feel like even in 
um, our advocacy mindset, even though we're complete advocates, just kind of like you're a parent, you're used to, especially of a child with disability, thinking of all the elements and all the things before it happens to them, because you just think for them in a sense. And we just thought a little bit differently. And now I'm just so happy and blessed that we went this route. She is in a sports team with people in our community. And it's just been a wonderful way to further kind of getting involved in this community that we moved into two years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'll say, I'll say something we noticed um, last year when, you know, she was with the the other baseball team is that this is kind of almost probably it's like, I mean, I don't know if this is ableist, but it's, it's just an overcompensation where like the amount of volunteers that were on the field, like with everybody that felt overwhelming. Like that felt a little bit like in the same way we're assuming they all need so much help. They just, they so drastically overcompensated that, that it just really felt like you could barely pay attention to those who were the players because there were so many typical volunteers out there in their, in their red shirts and whatever and it kind of just overwhelmed like the whole thing. And it, it almost looked like they weren't able to kind of play the game sometimes, you know, because of just the kind of the saturation of help. And so um, I don't know. I think there's something there's a balance there of, you know, of trying to figure out like how do how do you create space where they can find, you know, their physical independence and their participation um, and, and help as needed, but not but know how to kind of give that buffer and, and allow that kind of space. And so th- it was interesting to experience it kind of in, in that way. And that's where I think those are like subtle, like micro ableist kind of like things that are just like, oh, like we have to be a little bit more gracious and a little bit more um, giving to what's possible versus just assuming almost too much help. And I hear both sides of that coin of just like there's plenty of. Yeah, you got to go player to player. And it's it's a very independent, like kind of like analysis and in, in way that you do things for sure. Because Sunflower had like two volunteers with her and it's just like she barely needs one out there, <laughs> you know. And so it's kind of I think it's a little bit of a. Which then caused us to adjust yeah. is what I'm I kind of like that there was like that be that first phase, even though I think we could have signed her up way earlier in a typical team. But like. But yeah, to see like, okay, this team is amazing and wonderful and we can try something a little bit more challenging in my mind, which ended up not being too challenging for her. Our eyes needed to be open that we were kind of holding her back. And I'm glad that we were on the same page and you helped to encourage me that she would be fine. And I'm so happy over and now they're going to roll right into baseball. All right, friends, so Mercedes and Andy just touched on this, but Josh and I wanted to jump in here and talk a little bit also about that idea of when you're, when you have a partner, you're raising kids together and feeling similarly about ableist comments or the burden of advocating and like what to do if they're silent on important issues, et cetera. We talk about this a bit on the podcast, that idea of ending undoing ableism in our own lives. And just because you have a child with Down syndrome doesn't mean that that automatically happens. It's work, it's process, and it's an undoing of something. And so there's action required there. And as it is with any, with all different individuals, you and your partner are going to approach that differently. Um, So I think there needs to be clear communication and knowing that you're on the same page or at least headed in the same direction. And then how you get there is going to depend on personality and all that stuff. Um, Grace upon grace upon grace. We say that a lot in our marriage, right, babe? Yeah. I do want to tell a real quick story, though, that just happened. So 
I will say this, Josh and I, more so in the beginning of our relationship and then the beginning years of parenting, we followed into like some of those stereotypical gender roles that you can find in marriages, especially 20 years ago, meaning Josh was the breadwinner. He worked full time and we had kids. I stayed home full time. Um, And so that just meant that we had different tasks at home. And when it came to, and that was for the first 10 years of being parents, when it came to things like IEPs and advocacy work, I had more capacity within my day to dive into those things because I wasn't working an eight hour day or whatever it was. And so it wasn't that Josh wasn't doing those things or wasn't on the same page with me. It was just that I had the time. And as I began working full time, um, and then we both are working full time, Josh and I talk about the way that we parent and step into all things that involve parenting is 100%. He's 100% the parent. I'm 100% the parent. And we do these things together. And bear with me here, friends. This is worth the story, okay? In the advocacy space, because I had those first 10 years with Mason of being the leader in that, I just had more experience. And so a lot of times in IEP meetings or if something came up and I was like all the rage about it, Josh would just follow my lead or come to me to ask questions and let me really take the lead there. But as over the last 10 years or so, 10, yeah, no, not even five Five or six years since we've been working together full time, um, five years. He's really stepped into that role um, because he's been learning so much. And so this last weekend, we had an IEP for Macy and I was on the road. Um, and so I like handed the keys over 100%. Not that he needed me to hand them over, not that he was asking for the keys. It just kind of happened naturally. And Josh was a boss and he led the meeting. And I listened most of the time. And when we were done, I'm like, baby, you were an advocate boss there. And so it was, I think that for us, it's never been like, we're not competing with one another in the space. Um, it is so much about communication, 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 yeah. right? Like, yeah. And I think, I think you said, what earlier, was your experience? No, but I, I think earlier you said understanding personalities. And I think one of the things I would say that has been really really good for us is just the self-awareness as we've grown together and as we've advocated and understanding where our strengths are. And so I'm a really good supporting role and I always have been, I've always been in that position and most of my jobs. And so recently when I switched jobs and I've been at home more, things came up, I just stepped in. And, And so I think I, yeah, I mean, I learned a lot from you, but I also, I mean, I didn't have the schooling that you had with your education and going into being a teacher, but think it was just a matter of stepping up and stepping in yeah definitely i think that it's just been so important for josh and i he just mentioned like this self-awareness there was a time in our relationship when i had an expectation or a hope that josh would do a certain thing or say a certain thing or feel a certain way and i never told him that and so then i can start to build up resentment and that feels unfair um part of this question that someone wrote in is what to do if they're silent on important issues i think it do they know how important the issue is to you? Like, have I said to Josh, Josh, this is really important to me. And this is, here's three ways that you can show up in this space for me, because this is a really important issue. Um, yeah. Being transparent and communicating the things that you want, instead of assuming that your partner is going to feel a certain way or act a certain way has been super helpful with us. Yeah. I think this doesn't have anything to do with Down syndrome. This has so much to do with um, taking a moment to be a listener and to be a learner. And I think we've had, we've gotten it wrong a lot 
especially in the early years of you just are kind of selfish and you're looking out for yourself. And as you grow together, I think it's so important to stop. And we do lots of check-ins. We do lots of, is there anything you need to know? And I, I think um, <laughs> we say this in our house, like read the room. Like if, if it's important to your wife, you're gonna, if you're, it's important to your partner, you're, you're going to be aware of it. And it's not, it might not be easy, but be a listener and be a learner. And I'll just say one more thing before we go to the next question. Um, that it is unbelievably exhausting to be a parent advocating and standing up against ableist comments and systems. It's so tiring and, um, it is, it's heavy. It's a heavy thing to hold. And so just again, like I said, grace upon grace upon grace, you know, there's moments where I'm like at my wits end and I'm emotionally unavailable or I'm, um, frustrated over things that it's like, why are you so frustrated about? It's like, Oh, I, because I've just been spending the last 10 years trying to convince the world that my kid has worth. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I'm going to it is what I would just say is sometimes it does get exhausting being a soundboard to your partner and you are just preaching to each other mm-hmm. and you are the, you're the biggest support. However, I think it's really important to have other people that you can vent to have other people that you can listen to and they can listen to. And um, we've both been to therapy. I encourage it. I think it's good to um, just to seek other tools for, for um, working out that frustration and, and just seeking ways to be, again, to be self-aware, to understand how to handle the stress of raising a kid with a disability is it's massive. And so just continue to, I mean, self-care is probably something that comes up all the time in our house. And just being aware of each other's needs and pushing for that and advocating for your spouse and your partner and all of that. So, yeah. Okay, great. Next question. Next question was along the same lines of like emotional needs. How are you meeting each other's emotional needs? Um, And, you know, I, I touched on this a second ago that there's a level of vulnerability that is just required um, and there's the time that you have to build into your life together where you can have that vulnerability. And that's, it's not, that's not an easy thing to build in. How do you think we built that in? Um, I don't think it was, there, there was not sort of a, a format to it. Um, but I think the way it's worked for us is that there are kind of these really key, like high leverage moments. I'm using a sports term here. Um, High leverage moments where you can kind of tell that your partner is feeling something. And maybe maybe they don't really want to burden you with that at that moment, or maybe they just need you to see that. But I think where we've had like these moments where we've gone to the next level of depth, where one of us has seen the other feeling something. Mike, I think about, you've written about this and talked about it, the time you took Ace to the dentist. And it was, it was a really hard time because, um, you know, you experienced their lack of understanding. And, um, you know, we can kind of go through our life with Ace and we're just used to it. But then to have that wound kind of picked apart by somebody who doesn't, not intentionally, but just the way the world operates and to feel that, that, um, that difference in a real way, 
I think it was really important in that moment for me to, to see how um, you were feeling that and just to be willing to ask about it and to, to listen to you talk about it. What was that like for you? Yeah, I think there's a, well, I'll just say this. I think in that moment, you know, that was just last spring. Ace had a terrible experience at the dentist. The dentist said something to me that, um, you know, was kind of casual ableism, but um, hurtful. And I just, for whatever reason, it was more painful than other casual ableistic <laughs> moments. And I think there is there could have been a response from Chris that was like, Micah, we've been doing this for seven years. This happens all the time. Like, shake it off. And I think what you saw, Chris, was that I just needed, it was just one of those moments when I needed a good cry over it. When um, I think those things build up and sometimes you tolerate it and sometimes you're like, I want to go to the dentist with my kid and it not be hard. And I want the world to accept him. And in those moments, you need to feel it. And so I think recognizing, learning to recognize those moments for each other, learning to make space for each other to feel those things, even if it's the same thing that we felt five years ago, um, just looking a little different, you know, it's those, those moments come and, and making space for the other to do, to, to feel what we feel is so important. Um, and I think in the early days of, you know, our, our story is probably different in some ways than Mercedes and Heather's in that they decided to adopt and we had a diagnosis, um, a prenatal diagnosis, but um, there were a lot of feelings and uh, expectations that we had to work through. And I think there's probably listeners who are in the very early stages who are not dealing with seven-year-old dentist appointment feelings, but they're dealing with feelings of like whammo, we got this diagnosis and this was not my life plan. And this was not my expectation for what my child, my child's life would look like or what our future would look like as a couple or what our family would look like. And I wonder, Chris, how you think of that time and how we were able to support each other and maybe how we weren't able to support each other. Um, yeah, what, was, what were those early days like for you? I think it was really important to be able to say out loud what we were sad about, what we had imagined that would no longer be true about our future life to not pretend that we were going to be some heroes of, um, no, no, hero advocates all the time, but to really mourn the loss of whatever future we had imagined. Um, to get specific for me, that involves a lot of like lounging on Mediterranean beaches <laughs> and things, which maybe is still in the cards. I mean, Ace does love the beach. Um, but, I, th I think that was big and to not shortchange or downplay or minimize those feelings, but to make space for them. Um, you know, I think it 
has been a grace for us that Ace has made it easy in a lot of ways. He um, is a sweet kid. He is in many ways not stubborn. And so we have had some time to work through the challenges. Um, and I think if if you let yourself or you try and just Im- deal with it all at once, it's overwhelming. And so you have these little moments like the dentist where it breaks through and can feel overwhelming. But for the most part, it's just our life, right? And I think maybe that's been the, t- the turn that was good is that we mourned the thing that was not going to be true, but I think we um, have been able to, to accept the goodness of what is true through ACE in our life. I like that answer. Okay, next question, my dear. Has having kids with Down syndrome changed your relationship dynamic, traditional or non-traditional, maternal or paternal roles? So a lot of you know our story, but we adopted Sunflower and she is our first. So I feel like she has helped shaped our parenting and made it a lot more intentional from the start. I feel like we came into parenting really wanting, I don't know, adoption and disability to be welcomed and celebrated within our family and our family culture and how I hope our life goes. And I think it's our, I feel like it's a huge part of our reflection of being a Christ follower too, of the whole adopting into, I don't know, I I feel like you explain it better, but adoption and, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you would explain it better. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I mean, the only, I mean, the reason we did this in the first place is because Mercedes had, you know, her heart moved years before, you know, we re- we even met. You know that she wanted adoption to be a part of our our family story, and then um, all of her time working vocationally in um, disabilities and ministries and disabilities that I don't know made her awareness. Um, so keen to what it looks like to have a much more open narrative about um about love like i feel fortunate that i was brought into you know a a different narrative and philosophical narrative about what our marriage could look like what our family could look like right because you you know you come into a relationship with your partner with you know a expect like as a single person your expectations of what your life is going to look like and then figuring out how to like meld those two expectations together to enter a marriage and to care after each other and love each other through all of that is a whole different thing. And then, but it's, you know, I think for, for us, it never felt like, or at least for me, like, yeah, that was a big surprise. Like the idea of like, Oh, um, you know, I want to adopt in my family and in my future marriage. And I love that. And that sounded like a a grand idea and who knows when we were going to do that. But then like through the course of our own, uh, marriage story, you know, we found ourselves adopting, you know, Sunflower, who has Down syndrome, um, first on the list before, you know, we had, you know, our other three kids. And like Mercedes said, like that, that decision informed the way that we would actually parent for, you know, kind of the remainder of our entire life. Um, and obviously we can't, 
um, relate necessarily to those who, you know, got a diagnosis for Down syndrome in their parenting. And yes, that, I, I expect definitely that they're pretty significant dynamic changes and all of that. But I think it's like what's interesting, I think, for Mercedes and I is that there's more of a kind of an anchor and a core to the decisions we had made, you know, nine years ago. And that is constantly in the background of like, you know, we chose this, we chose this, we chose this. And so then it kind of like it helps to, you know, helps to bring a sense of maybe more grace in how we try to approach things like or at least how we when we're looking at the boys and, and talking with them, like we're kind of like trying to shape like this is this is how we operate as a family, because um, when it comes to inclusion, when it comes to how we talk about differences to them in their classes and things they come home and say and what we consider appropriate and inappropriate, you know, it's all direct because we have sunflower in the house. You know, it's like it's all like this isn't like something that's just out there when we notice something different about a person. It's like there's someone that is in our home where that difference is played out in every single day of your life. You know, you, you're related to this person. You love this person. And so um, that we hope and I think we always hope that, you know, that would be a different like baseline for how our kids would grow up, you know, and kind of see the world and see other people. And absolutely, is it challenging? Is it are we always looking to like manage those dynamics and how we parent each of them for sure? I think how we parent is still being shaped right in that because we have to be aware of all our kids' needs within how much having a child with special needs in our family also affects relationship um, dynamic of a household, like working as a family through that. It's, again, made us have to also be very much more intentional, gracious, and um, constantly having conversation. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> the amount of chatter in our home is is uh, is its own challenge. <laughs> so I feel like all of our answers are we are still very much in it <laughs> and always, always learning because Sunflower is only nine, but almost 10 this year, which is wild to think of. Okay, next question. Do you have different parenting styles for your kids with and without Down syndrome? Yes. Okay, next question. <laughs> okay, here's what I think this is an interesting question to answer given that we have three kids, two have Down syndrome. We have incredibly different parenting styles for every kid in our home. They are so different. Their needs are so different. Now, it's also tricky with True, our middle daughter who doesn't have a disability because it. I think from someone looking in, it's like Mason and August get away with more and they probably do. I don't know. We yeah, don't, we no, try no. really hard for them not to. We're really aware of this. But like during chores, truly has a skill set, has the gross motor, the fine motor, like the sensory stability, all these things that allow her to do more chores <laughs> or favors. We call them in our home. But Mason and August 100% have favors. Um, but it is a conversation, especially as true that adolescents of like, that's not fair. And also name an adolescent who hasn't said that's not fair about a sibling and Down syndrome or not. Right. Each kid needs to be parented their own way. We have like foundationally mm-hmm. what we like, what we've built our parenting on top of. I don't know. What do you want to say about this one? I don't have a lot to say other than we parent to the needs of our kids. Yeah. And that's not disability um, specific. That's good. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's also different. We have different parenting styles from mom and dad. So, um, yeah, I think I think we do a good balance. But 
And there are times where I'm hearing Josh parent any one of our kids and I'm like, oh, stop that. And same, Josh will hear me and it's like, oh, stop that. And so there we have like little words that we'll say. Yeah, I think there's a, to like we, we have the <laughs> this is such a privileged thing to say, but because it's a two parent home, but that we can we do like a tag team like uh, you might need to tap out. At yes. This moment. And I think that's has happened in, in the later years than in the early years. Being aware of when we know we can trust each other, when we have a look or a word to, to tap out. Yeah. Like, yes, exactly. You're at, you're at your max. Let me step in here. Um, parent, let's just say this. Parenting kids is so freaking hard. It is the best and the hardest period. And the other day, Josh took the kids to Disneyland. Again, just let's lay all our privileges out here. We have Disney passes. He took the kids without me. I met up later and truly our middle daughter texted me and said, Mom, I I just wish you were here because you're so enthusiastic. <laughs> I didn't tell you that. <laughs> In other words... Dad's a little salty. Dad's, Dad's a, a little bit grumpy. Dad's in a mood. I'm like, yeah, because he's been doing this by himself for the last four days. Okay. Oh gosh. Parents, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. It's <laughs> so dang hard. And it can, and one thing I've learned lately, and this doesn't have to do with relationships, but it's okay to say it's really, really hard and it's really, really good. Two things can be true at once. Yeah. We have one more question that I think is kind of a natural progression. Um it's a question about divorce and why we think there um, is a higher rate of divorce among families where disability is part of the equation. And yeah, I wonder, I mean, I think it a little bit of what we've already talked about, it's hard to make time for each other. It's hard to make emotional, to have emotional connections um, when life is just harder. Um, but I'm wondering, Chris, if you have any thoughts on um, what, why that might be and what it means that the rate of divorce is higher among families like ours. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's rocket science that when you add complications and challenges into an already difficult thing um, of, you know, if, if a marriage is a lot about giving up your own things to... Um, to melt and and move towards another person when you add a burden in there when you add um, a difficulty a challenge a complexity as much as i don't love talking about um, ace in that way it's the reality it is an extra weight that we all carry or that we carry um, and i think i think if you're reasonably healthy reasonably um, you know economically stable you can kind of maybe get through some other friction. And then when you add in another level of, of difficulty, sometimes I think that it can just, it can break things. Um, we, I think we've been really fortunate, Micah, that Ace has brought us closer together. And I wonder, I think you would say the same, but I wonder why you think that is and, and what have we been, what's worked for us? Well, I think that there's... There's something about the emotional connection piece uh, that has been part of ACE bringing us closer together. And I think that ACE has helped us maybe reveal parts of ourselves to each other that we weren't even aware of or that were 
um, we probably could have gotten away <laughs> with more years of not digging that deep. Um, I think that's a gift that when when something in your life brings that kind of challenge, it you can either push it down and close yourself off or you can open yourself up and let it come to the surface and let that become part of your relationship. And, you know, I think there's a lot of when life is easy, some like there's a lot of couples who have just not had to be as emotionally connected. Um, and I, that's, you know, maybe that's just life moves along smoothly enough, quick enough. You don't have to go to those depths. Uh, but when you have things that are hard, whether it's disability, whether it's a kid who's sick, whether it's financial struggle, whatever it is, it's an opportunity to let those things come to the surface and reveal them to each other and work through it. And I think that's been the gift for us in our relationship. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think connecting a little bit to what I said earlier, I think, um, you know, you have to share this new vision, this new dream of what life might be like. Um, and I think if you can both get on board with that, it can bring you closer together. And so, I don't know, maybe it's really important to to dream together about the goodness of the future and what it might look like, um, as hard as that can feel sometimes, especially when you're in the, you know, the craziness of, um, you know, um, school meetings and dealing with challenging social situations and, and whatever. Um, how do you, how do you imagine the goodness that will come out of it? Yeah, I think this is, I, I think we've kind of hit on the things, Chris. I think it's, I just want to say that uh, for everybody out there, Chris and I have both individually gone to therapy in the years since Ace was born. Um, we've gone to therapy together a couple of, a few times. And I think that those things have been really important too. And I just want to encourage our listeners that, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a dramatic, like crisis in your marriage to get help thinking through and talking through the big things. Just get a little tune-up, you know? <laughs> That's right. Get a little tune-up. And this one always makes me sad. I wish it wasn't such a huge, like, factor in the disabilities world. The divorce rate for parents of kids with disabilities is higher. But my personal opinion, like, we haven't had this issue between you and I. But I think even um, earlier on, I think therapy has been a huge part for both of us. Seeking therapy individually and together when life in general got hard was has been a huge help. I think um, my mom would help every once in a while for babysitting so that we can have our time for dates. But then also when we didn't have um, someone to give us dates, I think you being able to go out with friends you know, whenever invited or trips whenever invited has always been super helpful. Me being able to go out with my friends or and go on trips whenever invited and feeling supported 
is also very helpful because if it, it's hard to sometimes get that time with the both of us to get away, but individually can happen a little bit easier. I think that's super important. And then the times that we have at the end of the night or early, early morning to just be with each other, I think is huge. Um, we now have a sitter that we get to have regular dates, you know, during the week, which has been huge. Um, I think time and space to talk without noise and a lot of movement has been huge at keeping our relationship strong, which I could see as um, hard to do. It's There's an extra layer of it's hard to have that time and space when you have a child with disabilities, you know, um, if there's constant running around to different therapies, not anybody can just watch your child because you need to feel that comfortable, that safety with that person, because that needed to just be the base so that you and I as a couple in our marriage, which needs to be the most safest for our kids, the most strongest for our kids and for our lives was it good enough to leave them so that we could have time? And that was really, I needed someone to tell me it like that. So I could be like, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think to, and I, I, I agree with all the things Mercedes says with what, what is going on in our life that has made it work. Like I've had personally, you know, this is not hard, this is not easy, but it's something I had to adopt early on just because I think of, well, from a point that I'll get at in a second here, but like I, I have a pretty like yes policy to Mercedes going out anytime. And it's largely just because it's you can you almost can never get enough time to yourself, no matter what. You know what I mean? Like you always think in your mind, you need more time, you need more time, you need more time to, for whatever that looks like, however you spend that time. So it's just that because when we're raising four kids, when we're raising a person with a disability, like we have a very active life, we are very busy. And it's like, I think even if you went out like three times a week, it would maybe still feel like for you, you're pretty great at it. Like you don't feel like you need that much time. But I can also see where sometimes it feels like, man, I just can't seem to get enough time to get my head straight or get my head clear or like just have have that break. And so but as a as a partner and as a husband, like. I have adopted pretty much just a yes policy to whenever she asked me if she wants to go out with friends or make plans or whatever it be, because, you know, I have to acknowledge my own capability. Am I capable of like caring for my four kids and, you know, my child with Down syndrome? Yes, I am capable. Am I capable of doing that every single day, every single week? Yes, I have to be. And so it's like, and I'm also capable of trying to um, make space for, you know, my partner to have what she needs. So that way she can function with me and function with me well. And, you know, the question is asking us like, why do we think that maybe divorce is so high in the case of like people with disability or with disabilities? And, you know, I think that's potentially one of, you know, two very broad issues. And this is obviously a bit hyperbolic and philosophical. And we're kind of guessing here. You, you've come from, of a, of a divorce family. I've come from not like, but the, I think largely one, your expectations of marriage, your expectations of what your that looks like. I think that it's largely most 
an existential issue. Once you get deep into this thing, you're suddenly asking, like, what am I doing here? Was this the life that I had planned? Is this what I quote unquote want? Am I happy? We start asking all of those kinds of questions. And it starts to just become a spectrum of weight of like, well, what what is the most important thing? Is it about how much happiness I experience in my life? Is it about how much of X, Y, Z I experience in my life? I mean, all of those expectations, I think, are the things that begin to shape why we exist and what we exist for. And the thing is, if you if you don't have a place where you can share those thoughts or you don't feel like you're safe to share those thoughts with your partner, then, yeah, I would say there's no surprise that, you know, anyone would descend into a place where they, you know, feel like they have other needs and that, you know, maintaining that marriage and maintaining that family with that person is is no longer possible and no longer capable. Um, But that's usually I mean, you know, much like I mean, many of the stories I've heard around divorce and pastoring and counseling is that you grow apart because the communication breaks down. You know, you start to have your own thoughts about what matters to you most. And it it stops becoming a dialogue about what you're building together, you know. And I think like there's definitely a balance of like what's needed in a self a self-care perspective of like what we need to be healthy. But part of that self that that health is actually being able to communicate well to yourself, to your partner, to your others, to your friends, to your family, that entire way of practicing life is what makes it healthy. It makes it makes you more possible to function amongst others and therefore take care of children, take care of others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But so I think that's like that's more of an introspective kind of like existential philosophy of like how do we arrive at a place where we decide to leave commitments like that versus stay in them. But then I also think that we live in a very broken systemic social system as well, too. Financial support, wealth and um, low income disparity. I mean, all of those uh, like exterior factors, I think, play a pretty big role. The amount of time it takes to get your Medi-Cal set up, you know, or whatever local, you know, healthcare you're dealing with in your state, the amount of time it takes to do the simple things. Like if your child needs 24 seven care supervision, like you are there all the time. And that's where it's like that balance of partnership really plays a significant role, but it's also that, you know, outside systems um, play a role, like the stress of like dealing with a school with your IEP, like all of that stuff, you know, gets piled on and piled on in ways that you go and hang out with your friends who aren't doing the same thing. And they, seem like their life is light and even hearing about what their burdens are just have no comparison that's really hard you know and but i think that's also like that's part of that social system is like but why do we exist here what are we trying to accomplish as people together in community what does love actually look like in your life both even from friends like know your burdens like know how to share those burdens well Um, and i think that crosses all of those spheres but like yes like I think like a lot of systems in the social sphere cause this kind of stuff passively, not necessarily directly, but it's like it causes more stress than any two people are often able of taking care of. Uh, but then there's also that that personal fight of just, you know, doing it and, you know, how people, why people divorce, like, you know, no judgment. Like, I don't you know, I don't I don't live through those personally. Like, I only know so many friends that have gone through that experience, you know, but if we're just going to kind of, you know banter on why it, I think it's possible. I think that those are two right. pretty significant factors. Well, dear, I'm happy that <laughs> we're together in this and continuing to do the work. You know, we're not perfect, but no, I feel <laughs> we're not, not all, perfect. Of course not. But I feel like, like you were saying, our goal for the life we're building is what we keep in the front 
and doing that through Christ is what we keep in the front. And, um, I think that's been a really good, I, a really good focus. Yeah. You got to have something out in front of you. Like, and it's, it, and it's all, it's all, it's, it's all theory, you know, it's like all like, it's, it's just out there and it's ethereal and you can't grab it. You can't reach it. But that's the thing. It's like, you got to believe that you can build something with the efforts of two people. You know, you got to believe that if you care about something, you know, that, that good things can happen from that, you know, but, um, it's, 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 you don't just believe and it exists. It's something that takes work. It's something you have to put time and effort to. It takes faith, you know, and that's, it's really the idea that like you operate in this hope that what it is that you can see out there in your vision is possible of acquiring, but it requires hard decisions. It requires sacrifice. It requires work, you know, and it's, it's neither about happiness and it's neither about sadness. It's just, it's about, um, it's about doing it, you know, and, and living through the fullness of that experience, you know, with or without another person. Like, I think that's what makes single parents thrive, you know, is really seeing and grabbing onto that hope and belief that like every ounce of care that they put into it is going to mean something and it's going to matter, you know, at one point in time. And you gotta, you gotta grab onto that and run with it. Yay. Thanks babe for answering these with me. You're welcome. And okay. This one's fun. What are you doing for Valentine's Day? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> okay. Do you want to share what we're doing, babe? Yeah, for sure. Um, so we are, uh, we're doing a little mixology class. Woo-hoo. You know, uh, that's where <laughs> you learn. You know, you you. Uh, it's a little cocktail class. If you've never heard the term mixology. Okay, I love that. Yeah, you excited about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, what are we doing for Valentine's Day? Oh wait, it's Valentine's Day, y'all. I'm. This is how we're gonna answer this question. 2023 has kicked our butts and so it's february 14th and maybe we'll buy a heart pizza that's like the extent of it we're not even eating pizza right now no one in our family likes pizza i, I am planning on making like a heart-shaped pancake this morning. <laughs> okay that's it happy valentine's happy day everybody valentine's day. <laughs> all right people happy valentine's day thanks for letting us chat with you Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Andy and Chris and Josh for jumping in on this episode. Thanks to Josh Davis for editing this episode and Val Schluter for producing it. Thank you to Ashley Fracalosi for managing our social media. If you like this episode, you can share it with family and friends. Don't forget to subscribe. You can check us out on theluckyfewpodcast.com for show notes and all the things we talked about today. Make sure you're following at the lucky few pod on social media and you're going to get to see pictures of our handsome partners hey listener if you are alone on valentine's day today um if you are without a partner if you are in a stressful tense space with your partner today if you are in a great space with your partner today whatever it is you are so good and you are so loved we see you we see you and you know what you're slaying it so go buy yourself a heart-shaped pizza i think chick-fil-a sells like chicken nuggets in a heart i don't know we love you we're cheering you on can't wait to be together next week bye bye Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me. Okay, everyone. Thank you for listening to Andy and I. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And happy Galentine's Day. Galentine's Day. Not gallons times day? Not gallons. Not like gallons of milk. Gallons of gasoline. You can cut that part, Josh. (laughs)